Hey guys, just a quick content warning for today's episode. We will be talking about murder, gore, and sexual assault. So if you're not okay with that, now is your time to click off. But then that will start today's episode. Hi guys. Hey. <laughs> we are now back from our fall Thanksgiving break. And technically today is November 29th. But when this episode comes out, it will be December. So it yes. will officially be Christmas season. Yes. So mine isn't today, but yes. we're going to start <laughs> we're going to start doing a lot more like Christmas themed wintry. Yeah, like holiday like episodes. Yeah. Even maybe even New Year's. Oh yeah. Cuz that's like my favorite holiday. Really? I don't I think Why my, do <laughs> I don't I don't know. I don't know everyone's like, "Oh, I'm so looking forward to New Year's." <laughs> no, I love it cuz everyone's everyone always posts like New Year new me, and I'm like, "It's the same year, same me." Yeah. I time travel. <laughs> I think my favorite holiday is probably Halloween. Yeah. And well, then, like, I used to like Christmas a lot, probably, like, when I was younger. But then I think as, like, I started getting older, probably Halloween more. Even though I can't yeah. watch horror movies. <laughs> uh, I think I've actually said um, that Halloween is my favorite holiday. And it is. It is facts. Um, but I will say I do love New Year's Eve a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't even know why. I hate the idea of, like... A new year starting because then i have to change like when i'm yeah. what i'm like writing like on assignments i have to yeah i always write 2021 or like i mean just for example i'll write 2021 when i'm it's 2022 i'm also really freaked out for this year's new year's because i will that will be the year we're graduating because we're seniors oh, we're seniors this year so i didn't even think about that yeah also like on years we don't ever like really do anything special like we get like the fake like champagne whatever right. and then but, like, my mom does this tradition. Like, I think a lot of people do this around New Year's Day. You eat black-eyed peas. Yeah. It's supposed to be, like, bring it's like good luck. Good luck, yeah. Oh, no, they're also bomb. Anyways. I don't like <laughs> them that much. Hot, hot take. Anyways. <laughs> uh, sorry, we do love to get off topic. But um, today, my case is about um, lead singer of the band called The Gits, which is, like, a punk kind of rock band back in the 90s. They weren't really popular. But, um... It's about the lead singer Mia Zapata, who had gotten murdered. She had been um, found on a deserted street and was assaulted, uh, raped, and murdered at the age of 27 in um, Seattle, um, Seattle, Washington, um, which is actually a state where a lot of um, grunge rock bands come from, Nirvana, right. Soundgarden, yeah. Pearl Jam. Like, um, isn't... Uh, this might be very, very wrong. But isn't that where Saddle Creek Records is located? I don't know off the top of my head. Kind of sounds like Seattle, so maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that's where I could be confused, but... I don't know, but I just remember, like, the... What's the word? The environment of it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, according to Rolling Stone, it said that she was a pretty charismatic, charismatic and fiery performer. She had an effect on many people as... Um, I forgot. I don't know if they were all females, but she was definitely the female, like, lead singer, so mm-hmm. type of empowerment there. Yeah, it was a um, punk rock band. And they had done touring on the West Coast and had an indie debut album. Um, the Gits at the time poised for great, greater exposure with national tour dates planned a new re- and had a new record planned in the works. But, again, that all kind of came to a halt when she was found murdered, and that was on – it was the early morning of July 7th in 1993. Um, it had a lot of, despite, like, much the media attention, her murder was unsolved for almost a decade until her killer was finally found and convicted in 2004. And I think he died in, he died in prison, which I'll, I'll talk about in a different article later on. But, um, 
yeah, 25 years after the murder, her life and death still resonates with some of her close friends, um, who described her again as very charismatic, funny, caring person. Um, one of the, uh, the former guitarist, Andy Kessler, said, I considered her my best friend. She was really kind-hearted and very empathetic. It may have seemed to other people that she was not necessarily that way, but if you knew her then, she was really like that. Mm-hmm. And then now I'm going to start um, talking about a little bit about her uh, background. She was born on August 25th, 1965, um, named Mia Catherine Zapata, and she grew up in an upper-middle-class suburb in Louisville, Kentucky. Her parents were media executives, according to a documentary that they had done on their band. Um, her father, named Richard Zapata, um, remembered her daughter as very shy and, in quotes, the last person in the world who would call attention to herself. Um, and then in the fall of 1986, she formed her band, The Gits, with Dressner, Kessler, and drummer Steve Moriarty. All of them had studied at, I'm probably going to butcher this one, Antioch College. It's A-N-T-I-O-C-H. <laughs> um, and then one of the members, um, Moriarty, the drummer, um, had said she was always doing something, whether it was painting, sculpture, drawing, or writing. One thing she told me in college was how cathartic it could be to express yourself honestly through art, and that it was okay to express powerful emotions in songs. Um, and then they, their forming of their band, even made an impression on one of the students at that college named Valerie Agnew, who later co-founded the Seattle punk band Seven Year B Word. <laughs> um, and then she had said that most good performers make you feel like they're singing to you or understand your pain, and that was Mia's gift. Mm-hmm. Then in 1989, the Gits have left Ohio and headed to Seattle, moving into a, a kind of rundown home. Um, and then they use that as like their practice space. The house was a center of it was a big like music community that included some other bands, small bands. Um, yeah. Um, and then, again, back to when they were touring on the West Coast, they were sharing bills with Nirvana, Sublime, Beck, and Green Day, who I've seen two of those in concert. <laughs> and then they also toured Europe in 1991. And then the following year, they um, independently released their debut album, Frenching the Bully, which, um, according to Dressner, ma- um, made a little splash locally. And then by 1993, they were finishing their second album, um, and were slated to play their first ever gig in um, New York City, um, as in their documentary called The Gits. Mm-hmm. Atlantic Records made an offer to sign them, um, and then according to Kessler, he was talking about how the band was just getting better, and like they could tell that they were going on a good path. Um, but then, on the evening of July 6, 1993, the day before her murder, uh, she was out drinking with some of her friends at the Comet Tavern in Seattle's Capitol Hill area, her friend Agnew recalls Zapata being in good spirits after she recently performed a solo show out in Los Angeles. Zapata uh, reportedly left the bar around midnight to look for her former boyfriend named Robert Jenkins <clears throat> at a rehearsal place located in an apartment building about a block away from um, the tavern bar they were at. Um, when he wasn't there, she went to a friend's apartment in that same building where she stayed till and till until about 2 a.m. Then that was the last time she was seen alive by anyone. It's not known what she had done between that time after she left the building. She, they said she may have walked around to either a taxi stand, went to go find Jenkins at another house, or just kind of 
roaming. Um, then around 3.20 a.m., a prostitute was walking in the central area, almost two miles from the tavern. Uh, she noticed Zapata's body lying on a deserted street. Um, efforts by medics to revive the singer were unsuccessful. It was later discovered that she had been um, assaulted and strangled to death with the cords of a Git sweatshirt she was wearing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, uh, people were starting to get worried when she didn't show up for a recording session at the studio later that morning. Um, some of the concerned, concerned friends contacted the hospital and then the police. Um, and then the drummer said, Then somebody had the nerve to call the morgue. And the M.E., who was a music fan, had seen the get, who had seen the get, says, It's your singer. I'm sorry. You should get someone to come down and identify her. It was a lifelong traumatic moment. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Um, her wake was held in, up in Seattle, and she was buried in her hometown back in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, the murder shattered the innocence and carefree vibe of the Seattle music community. Again, talking about how it's a low place where bunch of rock and grunge bands like i think um a little off topic but they have a pop culture museum up there and i know they had like a nirvana um mm-hmm. and also the guy who, um i don't know that much about him but dave Grohl, he was a, the drummer of nirvana and then started foo fighters so mm-hmm. a lot of people kind of come from again that area big music community um uh one of the members dredsner had said mia's murder put an unbreakable pall on her tight-knit community there was definitely a sense of fear and suspicion based largely on the fact the police had no leads to find her murder I felt like everyone was coming up with theories and conspiracies about who killed Mia, with a lot of our close friends becoming suspects um, of the Seattle Police Department and or the community. It sucked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I just know the the even though the band members didn't really have anything to do with it, they right. Um, and then for the murder weapon, other than the drawstrings used from her um, get sweatshirt, um, there were no visible clues from the crime scene including fingerprints and other bodily fluids, mm-hmm. um, and with no eyewitnesses who had come forward. The case challenged investigators. Um, the King County judge, Timothy Bradshaw, said there was simply no evidence, not a lot of evidence um, who handled, uh, and he said it was um, every scenario we could possibly imagine, nothing was narrowed. And he was the one who handled the uh, murder case as one of the prosecutors at the time. And then... Um, in the wake of her murder, um, Valerie Agnew and some of her other friends formed Home Alive, an organization devoted to educating women about self-defense, mm-hmm. which is good because um, Seattle's major city or any city, like I know, like probably anyone out there right. can relate, um, like night walking around this woman can be dangerous yeah, or just any kind of younger age because she was 27, so she was still pretty young. Yeah. Um, but when it when it appeared to them that the case wasn't moving forward, um, there's the GITS members uh, mounted local benefit shows with the participation of other bands to help raise money to hire a pri- private investigator. Nirvana was actually a special guest at one of the concerts. Oh. Um, and then the other um, members of the of the GITS also teamed with Joan Jett for some <gasps> for some live performances. I love Joan Jett. So do I. <laughs> Big fan of her. So do I. What? So am I. <laughs> Sorry. I was impressed. <laughs> um. And then the, a benefit album called a Home Alive was released in 1996 featuring music by Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden, which I love mm-hmm. all three of those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then while the, priv- the private and guest air pr- produced notebooks full with information and evidence, 
that were later handed over to the authorities, says the drummer. Nothing came out that led to the killer. Um, the case went cold for almost a decade as Bradshaw and the Seattle Homicide Unit were still looking at the investigation. Then in December of 2002, a major break occurred when the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab ran a DNA check based on preserved swabs of saliva collected from her mouth nine years earlier. Mm-hmm. From her body. Um, and came up with a match. Um, Jesus uh, Mesquia, who was a fisherman living in Florida, he was a Cuban who came to the U.S. during the 1980. Mary Mario um, Boatlift, he had reportedly had a criminal history that included robbery, kidnapping, and aggra- aggravated battery. His DNA sample was entered into a national data bank following his conviction for possession of burglary tools, and then upon further investigation, it was discovered that he had lived in Seattle around the time of her murder. Oh. Yeah. And then shortly after the DNA hit, um, the investigative team, including Bradshaw, traveled to Miami and performed um, surveillance on him. The suspect was later detained by the Florida authorities, and he was interrogated by Seattle um, investigators. Mesquia denied knowing Zapata, though he acknowledged he was in Seattle then. Um, Bradshaw said he began calm and cooperative until being asked whether he raped or killed anyone in Seattle. Um, at that point, then, at that point, he then stood, extended his arms loudly, declared, "See, I'm not shaking. I tell the truth. I filed first degree." Mer- uh, first degree charges immediately upon returning to Seattle. Oh. <laughs> um, here's a picture of him. Uh, you can't, see, <laughs> y'all can't see, but <laughs> um, they were talking about his physical build. Pretty big mm-hmm. dude. Um, yeah, can't see the like photo. He's very tall. Over six foot. Yeah. Well, I feel like a lot of men are, but like <laughs> probably like six four, six five, maybe. Yeah. Um. Then on March 25th, 2004, after deliberating for three days, the jury found Mesquia guilty. He was later given a stiff sentence by Judge Sharon Armstrong of 37 years in prison, um, exceeding the maximum amount because of the, in quotes, particularly painful injuries that she had suffered. Right. Yeah. Um, An appellate court overturned the sentence in 2005 based on a previous U.S. Supreme Court decision though Mischia was later resentenced to serve approximately the same number of years. Um, Bradshaw said it was very gratifying. The friends, family, and band members who were in the courtroom, that's what they've been wanting to hear. But you realize when a measure of justice has been achieved, there's also this sadness that sets in. You realize that it's not going to bring her back. Right. But it's, um, this is in quotes, but it's still good to bring the justice. Right. Um, though she's not alive anymore. Then, um back with the gets they had released an album 1994 followed by um archival sorry yeah (laughs) releases over the years and then in 2015 the gets reunited for the first time in 20 years with rachel uh flotard of visqueen visqueen (laughs) on vocals sorry it's weird um to perform at a benefit show for um hammer box bassist james atkins who had cancer before he died the following year Oh. Yeah, and then even after twenty, even after twenty five years, the death of Mia Zapata still lingers. Uh, one of the drummers said, "It's always there. It'll have a major impact on my life forever. I have more faith in my life, but I'm also weary, and I understand darkness and human nature." And he recently had started um, a Kickstarter campaign for a book he was going to write about her. Mm-hmm. And then this article came out in two thousand eighteen, but it says today her friends have preferred that. Zapata to be remembered more for her life and music than the murder. Right. Um, 
and then Agnew remembers Zapata's unplugged performance of the Gitz song called Social Love. That sums up who she was. And then, um, in quotes, it says, You hear her starting her song, and then stopping, fumbling a bit with a lot of humility, humor, and bravery. Then she plays a song. She effing devastates you because it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's more about her uh, legacy and stuff. And then this one is a more recent article that actually came out this year um, about uh, her murderer who um, has died Mm -hmm. in prison. Anyways, and the recent article kind of sums up kind of what we just said, but he did um, die in prison. So he was 66 years old, and he died on January 21st, 2021. Um, His death was confirmed by the Washington State Department of Corrections, which declined to provide a cause of death, citing state privacy laws. Right. And he like I just said, had been currently serving a 36-year sentence, which was overturned August 2005, but then subsequently reinstated by the State Court of Appeals in January 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, sorry, that was kind of like a, a weird abrupt ending, but um, it's a very sad case, but I really like this case because mm-hmm. um, I normally kind of like after a murder that like, uh, n- normally it's like the family members who speak out, but they're like, you know, like we're so sad, like her legacy will live on, but like these ones, like they seemed very passionate about it. Like they led health benefits. They had um, pretty notable bands, artists. Right help come out and i think it's just really cool that they were to get the justice that mm-hmm. uh and also like the the like familiar um the like relationships in bands are like different from like f- just friends or like just family right like um you're there's like a certain relationship with your bandmates and so mm-hmm. i think it's um cool that he's the what's his name whatever his name is is starting a Kickstarter to... Um, oh, one of the... Ba- just some of the yeah. band members, yeah. Yeah, who... So they can write a, a book about her so that her yeah. memory can live on rather than the her murder, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so. And then... I know y'all can't um, see it, but... <laughs> we're pulling here's a picture. Yeah, yeah here's a picture of her. But, um, yeah. Again, I did really enjoy that case. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to start on yours... <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, um, like Bryn said earlier, my um, my case is more like Christmas themed. On December fourth, nineteen ninety seven, a Georgia couple who cared for foster children along with two of their own children were shot to death while they slept by an intruder who then took three other children from the home. Later, the children were found alive by a farmer along a country lo- road about thirty miles away. The children said Heidler had kidnapped them as he fled the murder scene. Heidler was also charged with molesting one of the surviving girls. Toombs County Sheriff Charles Durst said Jerry Heidler, a man who is not related to any of the children, was arrested and charged with the killings. The dead identified as Danny and Kim Daniels. That was the couple. Um... Their 16-year-old daughter and their 12-year-old son were all shot in their bed as they beds as they slept. The oh my kid, God. Yeah, their, the kidnapped children were the couple's 10 and 8-year-old daughters, and a 9-year-old foster child, also a girl. Um, the girls were dropped off on the south side of a road in Bacon County. Bacon County. Sorry, I don't know why that's. What state funny. is it again? This is Georgia. Georgia. And what year was it? 1997. It's 97. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So it's like late 90s. Yeah. Georgia. I know how numbers work. <laughs> Just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> um, Off on a side of uh, Bacon County. Anyways, uh, which is two counties like to the south. Um, a farmer found them and called authorities who alerted the police in Toombs County. Left alive at the blood-splattered home were the 10-month-old boy and 5-year-old boy, um, who was the 5-year-old the boy was the brother of the 9-year-old foster girl. Um, information obtained from the surviving children of the uh, Dasher Lane Massacre. I suppose that's what um, this is called, the, the murder. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the information led investigators to Jerry Heidler, who the children knew as Scott Taylor, um, for the murder of their foster parents and their two children. Uh, Jerry Heidler, who was 20 at the time, was charged with murder, kidnapping, and burglary. Um, the Daniels um, were residents of the curiously named town of Santa Claus. <laughs> that's why, Yeah, that's why it's a little Christmassy today. It's only a little Christmassy. I see. Um, but it's also December 4th is when this took place, so... Um, but Santa Claus, <laughs> the town. It's just such a funny name. I know, for a, for a city. Not a funny situation, a but a funny name. Yeah. Um, Santa Claus was a community 70 miles west of Savannah, Georgia, um, where the streets are named for reindeer. I'm sorry. That's, <laughs> that's just really comical. I know. I've never heard of that before. No. Um, before the killings, uh, Heidler had briefly lived with the family while trying to overcome drug and alcohol problems. Before the killings, Heidler had briefly lived with the family while trying to overcome drug and alcohol problems. According to his mother, Heidler, who had dated Jessica Daniels, um, was distraught because his girlfriend had given birth to a stillborn baby two days earlier. Oh my God. GBI agents, which I'm guessing Georgia Bureau of Investigations, Agents found Heidler hiding under his mother's house in Alma. According to testimony and hearings, Heidler said he remembered the killings as a dream. You were right. Sorry. It is the Georgia Borough of Investigation. Good. Um, Heidler, who had open heart surgery when he was four years old, was placed in two foster homes because of poor supervision by his mother. He had imaginary friends, a mouse that he carried around in his hand, said Sylvia Boatwright. Um, Heidler's foster mother when he was 11. Scotty was also afraid of the dark. So we have another person calling him Scott. Um, Mm. He was afraid a knife would come through the ceiling and cut him. Oh. (laughs) Later, when he returned to his mother, uh, he attended a school in Baxley for children with learning disabilities. Um, He had mutilated himself by picking at his own skin until he bled, um, which was testified by Marilyn Dryden, Dryden, um, who was his teacher at that time. Uh, James Mash, Mash. Um, anyways, he was a forensic psychologist from Augusta. Uh, he testified um, that Heidler suffered from a severe case of borderline personality disorder, and he said Heidler had eight of the nine symptoms, including suicide attempts, outbursts of uncontrolled anger and frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. Um, wow, this is interesting. On July 6, 1999, 
uh, Heidler, along with nine other prisoners, escaped from uh, a Tombs County jail cell. Huh. <laughs> uh, interesting. Yeah, I, I just felt like that was an interesting fact. Um, and then he he was quickly found and arrested yeah. again. So after he was captured um, and, like, returned to jail for trial, um, the trial opened before a jury of, jury of seven men and five women on August 30th, 1999, um, in the in a, in a courthouse, obviously. But um, so Prosecutor Malone said that he um, would seek the death penalty, and Heidler's defense che- team chose to seek pity from the jurors by using the mental illness defense. In his opening dis- in his opening statement, Prosecutor Malone painted a bizarre picture of the sp- suspect. He said he was arrested in May for breaking into Taylor's treasures and stealing porcelain dolls, Nintendo games, and knives. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. The good old combo of porcelain dolls, Nintendo games, and knives. Me. Just kidding, that's not me. <laughs> oh that's my not God. me, guys. I'm just, I just happen to be a Nintendo fan, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, a young mother testified she had hired Heidler um, to babysit her three children in exchange for a room in her home. She said he was good with her children and she couldn't have managed without his help. Um, she described him as a quiet person, a regular couch potato who seldom went anywhere and worked on her car. As for his mental level, she said he was like a teenager in a 20-year-old body. I've seen him go out looking for jobs and no one would hire him. I can't believe this. And she said, adding, I can't believe this is happening as for the trial. Um, in the days that followed, uh, jurors heard from one side or the other about Heidler's tough life or his refusal to accept authority. But despite his unseeming lifestyle, he was never arrested, arrested for violent crimes, um, Aside from the burglary of Taylor Treasures, um, he stole a Kawasaki four-wheeler from a garage on South on on a on a street. But despite his unseeming lifestyle, he was never arrested for violent crimes. Aside from the burglary of Taylor Treasures, he also stole a Kawasaki four-wheeler, um, and uh, he was. Uh, currently facing felony counts in Alma, um, and he was newly on probation in both Tombs and Bacon counties for driving while intoxicated. And that was pretty much the extent of his criminal record. Um, But uh, a defense witness testified that in Heidler's hometown of Alma, about 30 miles away from the crime scene, he had enhanced his reputation as an oddball from a family who moved from one place to another. He said Heidler spent time in foster care homes, but eventually had to be placed in special treatment state school because of his emotional problems. Um, Garrett, who was the um, defense attorney, uh, was unable to sway the jury, who, after um, wrestling with indecision for a scant 20 minutes, um, came back and found the mass murderer guilty on Friday, September 3rd, 1999. So it only took the jury 20 minutes to decide <laughs> that he was guilty. Um, <laughs> but 
Yeah, so he was, um, and then he was, the penalty phase took less than two hours, and this time they invoked the death penalty. Um, The uh, judge, Walter McMillan, handed him an additional two life sentences plus 110 years on three counts of kidnapping and three Daniel's children, the kidnapping of three Daniel's children and the three counts of sodomy and child molestation and one burglary. So not only did he have the death penalty, two, but he also had two life sentences and 110 years. God. So, I mean, it like... He was never getting out. <laughs> no, he would never... He's... he's um, And then I believe he died. Um, Thank you guys for listening to today's episode, and we will see you all next week. Yeah, bye. bye. <laughs> Where's the button?